It is 2.58 in the afternoon on Friday, August 25th, 2017. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Live Podcast. I know it's been a long time since I've done a podcast. However, I'm back at it again. A lot has been happening in my life that I don't want to get into now. Someday you'll find out about it. Nothing uh, terrible. I've just been really busy uh, taking care of things. Uh, But I'm back into podcasting. By the way... uh, the week after Labor Day, on Tuesday, September 6th, I have somebody on from the Oregon Taxpayers Association. Now, what does that have to do with an LDS Life podcast, you might ask? Well, the president of the Oregon Taxpayers Association is LDS, but I'm going to have one of his assistants on because the president thought it would be better if I had him on. And so, uh, one uh, somebody is better than no one. And we'll talk about... Uh, the joys of low taxes, the joys of freedom, and uh, being a blind person. I'll talk about my experiences because I used to live in Oregon. If you listen to a few podcasts back where I talked a little bit about myself, and I have been the beneficiary of many social programs. Uh, This is not going to be a podcast where we're going to argue, oh, I'm better than you, and here's why. Just a good dialogue of good thoughts and ideas on both sides because that's what I am about. Uh, yes, this is the, the LDS Live podcast, but if you go back to Janelle Tobias, uh, we had I we had questions, or I had questions that I wondered about, and uh, we did not argue, just good dialogue. What do you think of that, uh, Wendell? I think that's a very good thing. Dialogue is uh, free flow of meaning. <laughs> yes. By the way, uh, my guest here is uh, Dr. Wendell Roberts. He does uh, special dentistry. Go ahead and give the name of it, because I can never give it, get it right. I want to say holistic dentist, but I know you don't like that name. What is, what is medicine? Oh, well, I, I, I love that name, but it scares some people away. Um, it's biomimetic. That's right. Biomimetic. And- Not genetic, but mimetic. That's how I should remember it. Okay. Biomimetic well, dentistry. Yeah, bio-mimicking dentistry. Yes. Uh, uh, Mimicking nature, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, and uh, we'll get into what is biomimetic dentistry, but let's uh, just go back and uh, talk about your background. You were born and raised in in, uh, Utah, correct? Correct. And where in Utah? Spanish Fork. Oh, okay, so uh, you're right back to uh, where you started. Correct. And uh, what, okay, so you were, uh, tell us a little bit, you don't have to give us a whole biography, just tell us a little bit about your childhood, anything unique, anything interesting, unusual. Well, um, I'll kind of talk about what relates to what we'll be talking about today. Um, First of all, I'm a a third generation dentist, and um, my... uh, great-great-grandfather was one of the original settlers in Spanish Fork in 1850, and he ended up um, as a soldier in the Black Hawk War and the Walker War, and did not leave a journal about that, but um, it's, it's just some interesting history for the for the area. Absolutely. And, and then... Uh, just a, a quick thing about my childhood is I love to uh, fix things and 
build things and um i mean my my dad threw away a broken sprinkler it was one of those rainbow sprinklers that just goes back and forth and uh, i took it apart and the a plastic link had broken and i made one out of metal um and put it back together and it, it outlasted the new one that he had bought to replace it and anyway it's a lot of people fix a lot of things but um i used to build model rockets and model airplanes and my first model rocket was ugly but it flew straight at least and then uh, as i i built more you know each one became better and better and better and i always learned something new uh with each one that i did anyway that's just a little a little glimpse of my childhood so well, if your uh, grandfather fought in the Black Hawk War, um, if you were single and was in a bad relationship and you broke up with the girl or she broke up with you and you had a hard time, she had a hard time getting over you, you could always play the song Goodbye Says It All by Black Hawk and you could say this has double meaning because not only is this a song by Black Hawk, not only is this what I'm feeling, but my grandfather fought in the Black Hawk War. What do you think of that? I think that's a really good idea. I'm going to make a note of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Have you heard that song that came out in 93, Goodbye Says It All by Blackhawk? Great song. Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, In fact, I can play it if you want. (laughs) Uh, Well, we'll skip it. Yeah, we'll skip it for now. Um, If you had it queued up and you could just say, play Goodbye Says It All... That'd be fine, but I don't think you have it queued up. I don't either, so well. No, I don't. Um, no, that's good. And then uh, you went on your mission to where? Well, um, I I started in Europe and I ended up in Africa, and um, I was in Rhodesia when it became Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. when Robert Mugabe was elected. And then I went from there to Johannesburg, and I was in Johannesburg for the last four months. Let's see, Johannesburg, that's in West Germany, correct? Oh, South Africa, sorry. Oh, never mind, okay. How did you get from Europe to South Africa? Well, um, now when they want missionaries to, to speak the language in an, you know, they'll have a small subset of missionaries, they'll just have them go straight from D.C. to that area. For example, uh, Los Angeles has a lot of Spanish-speaking missions. And what the church used to do is they'd have the missionaries get established and learn the language, uh, learning it from the natives in a uh, country that spoke that language. Then they would get a new mission call to go to uh, a different country. So I, I was in Portugal, and I got a new mission call and then was um, uh, transferred to South Africa. Well, actually, Rhodesia, or which is Zimbabwe now. What year were you in South Africa? Nineteen eighty. Okay, so you were there t- approximately what two years after uh, blacks could receive the priesthood. How was that? Uh, did a lot of people talk about that in Africa? How did that go over? Because I would imagine there'd be a lot of discussion. Because you didn't arrive there too much later. No, it it 
it was an exciting time, but the political climate was not such that we could um, work with the um, the blacks in Africa. The, oh. I mean, there, there was literally a, a war going on, a terrorist war between the ZANU and other um, tribal parties against the government in uh, Rhodesia. And oh. it, it, like I said, it was a terrorist war. So while I was there, there were a lot of uh, churches being bombed and banks and grocery stores and uh they had a uh, bomb squad that would close off sections of the street and search everyone in the street. Oh my gosh. And we that... got caught. Oh, go ahead. Just a few times. So. Yeah. So, so I'll bet that was kind of scary. The bomb squad, you said that you got caught. Did they, did you hear any bombs go off or anything like that? I'd imagine you oh. did. Well, we heard, uh, we heard, uh, two or three of the church bombings. So I was there for 11 months. I was there for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, like they bombed a, a Presbyterian church and they bombed a, a main hotel and we heard those go off. Um, but when they would close off the street to search everyone, if they found a suspicious package, they would detonate it. Oh! And they would have everyone get back and they would put charges like a they found a backpack or a box or something. They would just uh, put explosives on it and detonate it. Wow. So, Interesting. I'll bet uh, you had some close calls. Uh, it's, so, it's so strange that they weren't close calls at all. Interesting. Um, but And I felt totally safe there. But it, it is interesting. It did have an effect on me. We visited a sister in the hospital who had lost her baby from a hand grenade being thrown into their home. Ooh. And they they had a farm. And what was that? That's scary. Oh, yeah. So we would visit her in the hospital every day because her husband was out running the farm. And uh, she could not see. She wow. She couldn't read her stuff. And... Uh, she, I, when we were visiting her, she was um, kind of recovering from the primary trauma where she was just basically stitched back together and alive. And then what they'll do is they'll, they'll get through that period and then they'll start doing refining plastic surgery. But they had pictures of what she looked like before that. We couldn't tell that um, she looked anything like the person in the picture. Wow. And, uh, so. Oh, well, that's uh, that's fascinating and dangerous and horrifying at the same time. Well, uh, so you went on your mission. You came back, what, 1980, 1981? It was, yeah, 1980. Okay, and then you went to college where? Because you obviously went to college somewhere else before you went to a dental school. Where did you go to college at? Yeah, I went to BYU. Oh, you did? What did you study? Yeah. Well, I declared a major in zoology because that kind of overlapped uh, uh, with the requirements I needed for dental school. But um, I did not uh, plan to get a degree. I wanted to get into dental school. So I actually got into school and got, got in early and didn't 
end up getting a bachelor's degree, which um, was it easy to you pull? don't really need a oh what go ahead. Was it easy to pull something like that off back then? Because I don't know anyone who's pulled that off today. Was it easier to do that back then? People like me very strongly recommend that you don't. <laughs> so how did you pull it off? Did you take a pretest or some uh, record well, to get in? Uh, I think you could still get in. Um, uh, I had a really good application because I was a scoutmaster leading up to that. And okay. um, I was in a program at BYU where we would uh, coach um, handicapped children, like Down syndrome children with swimming. Oh. And once a week you you would go and have a, a swim partner. And um, the, the things that I did like that probably helped me as much as grades okay. at, um, at my application, you know. But I did take I did take a course for the dental admissions test, and my grades were really good. Very good. So, yeah, I just uh, it's interesting you mentioned that. I just uh, went swimming earlier today. My next door neighbors actually had a good time. Um, so then, uh, so are there people that still do go to school and attempt to get their bachelor's, and then the school will take them rem- immediately without getting a bachelor's? Is that unheard of today? Uh, I'm not really aware. I know that at BYU they really, they almost don't allow this. I mean, they can't keep you from applying, but they really do not want anyone going to school. Uh, They want them to graduate from BYU and then go to school. So it's uh, the the pre-dental program leaders um, uh, very strongly encourage or even pressure the the dental students to get their bachelor's degree. And if I were to speak there, I would recommend that they do it because you get in early and you haven't had microbiology or biochemistry and you start to get into those courses and the the instructors are uh, from India or Japan or Pakistan or China and you cannot understand a word they say and you're responsible for test questions on it, it's really good if you know it already or you've at least been exposed to it. So you're saying it's better probably that you get a bachelor's degree and then go to dental school just because of the nature of the program? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, You must have been pretty smart then if you just uh, went, I don't want to say cold turkey, but uh, certainly maybe not the experience that most people had. Oh, I'll tell you what, I sure didn't feel very smart. I, I, I... Like I was saying, I think I would have. I, I think it's smarter to go ahead and uh, take all the courses and then some, and have a summer off and go in fresh, and you know. Yeah. But so you went to dental school where in Oklahoma? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, incidentally, I was accepted at at every school I applied to, and I chose Oklahoma because. I felt like it had the most impressive program. Um, it, it had uh, uh, Herb Schillingberg, and he had written the textbook that, that most schools were using at the time on doing crowns and bridges. And then there was uh, Robertson and Primash there, and they had uh, published a book on pediatric dentistry. 
Um, there was a guy in the endodontic department that had invented and patented a um, system for doing root canals, which has which is still being used today. And so I, I felt like that was the best place to go. All right. And so uh, after you went through dental school, you went to the military, correct? You practiced uh, dentistry in the military. Yes. Um, I had planned to work with my dad, but um, the uh, the practice had slowed down a little bit. So um, he said it was a no-go. So I uh, last minute joined the Army, and I got to go to Germany for three and a half years. Yeah, so I, I guess you were in West Germany, obviously, and you were there when the Berlin yeah. Wall came down, correct? Yeah, November 9th, 1989. Yeah, we, you know what? Uh, I was that was at one o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, uh, where I was, and I remember trying to set my watch to because my watch was off and I was trying to set it to something and I knew the TV certain shows came on at a certain time, so I turned the TV to that channel, and yeah, the Berlin Wall came down November 9th. Uh, what was that like for you back there? Because you obviously witnessed it. Did you go across to East Germany after that just to see what it was like? How was that? Well, no, it's interesting. Now, we went to Czechoslovakia. When the Berlin Wall came down um, and there was the uh, basically collapse of the old Soviet Union and end of Cold War, we were, I think we were like the first tourist in Czechoslovakia. And wow. uh, so that was very interesting. We were there for 10 days. And, um, I mean, that was such a marvelous experience. And um, uh, there was a restaurant that you couldn't get into unless you had reservations. And so we'd go to the restaurant and there's no one there, but they wouldn't let anybody in because you didn't have reservations. And so um, the uh, person that we were with is from Czechoslovakia. And she had had to leave because she had done protests against the Soviets. And with uh, the Soviets leaving, she was able to go back. And she explained that we give tips when we are served well. And the waitresses would get a tip and uh, that, uh, you know, that we would probably give a 15% tip. Well, we automatically had reservations every night the rest of the time we were there. Uh, Interesting. It, it, and it wasn't, it wasn't really expensive. I mean, it, um, it was artificially inexpensive, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, because before it was a state thing and it didn't have to have a bit, they didn't have to make a profit. And, uh, but it, it was kind of fun. Just, uh, I, we were there, I mean, the Berlin Wall came down in November, and we were there just a month or two after that. Yeah. Um, did you ever get a piece of the Berlin Wall, bring it home, or did you ever walk across uh, east to East Germany? No, I never. Well, it's, it's kind of funny. Since everybody was doing that, we didn't, we didn't really feel like it was uh, something we needed to do. That is, I kind of do have a counterculture thing going in my head where I kind of go, uh, I, I see what everyone's doing and I really, really think through and want to know if I should be doing it with them. 
you know, just because they're doing it doesn't make me think it's right. <laughs> That's a great way to bridge into our topic, uh, magnetic dentistry, because that's a very different kind of dentistry. So how did you get into magnetic dentistry? What made you go down this path? Because obviously you didn't do that from the beginning. Um, well, uh, I didn't. Um, I think that it's been a gradual change of, it's kind of like when I was building the model airplanes and model rockets. I would do something better each time. Mm -hmm. And then I would learn tricks from uh, others who were building them. And I would uh, read uh, little hints in, in catalogs and magazines. And, and so when you're, when you're building a model, uh, uh, my goal was to, I mean, it was made of balsa wood and cardboard and um, plastic nose cones and stuff. And my goal was to make it so you couldn't see the spiral winding of the tubing. Um, you know how like uh, toilet paper and paper towel tubes uh, have the spiral lines on them where, where the, they're wound up and glued together? Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Same with these rockets. And then... Uh, early rockets would show the wood grain and then uh, as, as I got more experience I was able to get uh, I would make jigs to do precision cuts and I would do practice cuts um, with scrap so that when I did the, the final one that I was going to do I could make it absolutely perfect and then I learned how to sand and seal and um, finish and do paint without runs and uh and so uh you know i mean after 20 30 40 of them i mean the, the ones i did at the end were really re i mean there there were works of art you know and i've been doing dentistry for well we actually started doing dentistry in the first year of dental school but i've been out of dental school for 30 years and one month, well, maybe two months, 30 years and two months, and um, doing the same thing uh, all day, every day, with some changes. Some, some people have a problem with change. I have a problem with doing the same thing all day, every day, especially if it's not working, and especially if the way that I was taught is 130 years old anyway, which is... Um, uh, dentistry is kind of outdated. Um, we have we have a lot of new gadgets and gizmos, but they're helping us to do things that are outdated. It's kind of like having a smartphone and still having to go down to the train depot to pick up a telegram instead of having texting. Oh yes, that would really annoy me. Yeah, or. Or let's say we have our, our um, smartphones and we're having to use Morse code, you know, and and so a lot of what's, I mean, uh, and there are reasons why the system is is still that way, and it's, it's neither good nor bad, it just is, but um, anyway, um, as I've been, I mean, to, to answer your question about what brought about the change, it has been a little bit every time. And then I've, as I've done things the way that I was taught, 
I've realized that even though I was getting an A um, on cutting the enamel off the tooth to do a crown, I just became aware that I was doing more harm to that tooth cutting the enamel off than a whole lifetime of use had done. So what made you come to that conclusion? Did you read something? Did you have an epiphany over something? How did you come to that conclusion? Oh, it, it, it's another it's another story. There was I had a patient who was in her 70s, and she uh, lost a tooth, and um, we uh, let her know that I could do a bridge, and she said... Um, will it last the rest of my life? And I'm thinking, well, she's 70. For sure it'll last the rest of her life, you know. So I said, yeah, yeah it, it should last. And it lasted for 12 years. And they, uh, the front tooth on the bridge, and, and let me just explain to the listeners that, that a bridge is a solid um, imitation tooth uh, with porcelain on the outside that is then cemented to the stumps of teeth, but you have to cut the teeth down to stumps to put the bridge on it. And I don't think any dentist really like doing bridges on a, on a, on teeth that don't have problems and, uh, and to begin with. But anyway, this, uh, the front tooth on the bridge decayed and, uh, the decay was up inside of the, porcelain part and it didn't show on the x-ray and I couldn't see it until it was hopeless and uh, by the time I could see the decay um, it th there was not enough tooth left to even redo another bridge so I made her a partial for no charge and I extracted the tooth for no charge even though it had been 11 or 12 years but I just remember her just quietly crying because she was now going to have to wear a, a, a orthodontic retainer type thing with teeth in it. And um, now, there, I mean, people's teeth don't last forever to begin with, the way nature makes them. God didn't make them perfect. And so I think it was kind of arrogant for me to tell her that it could last her lifetime. But it also made me think that... Um, I was just painfully aware that I had done almost all the damage to that tooth that it, it, it had ever had in fixing it. And that was, uh, that was kind of a, um, an experience for me that I didn't want to do that again. So you can get A's on doing a perfect um, six-degree taper crown preparation, but... The A that you would get at school is not the grade that you get from the tooth that just had it done. So after this experience, did you read something or did something, what, what did you read an article that said you could do this differently or how did you come to that conclusion? Hey, well, it's really interesting because I kind of had this, this leaning almost to, to not do crowns or to minimize and so I was searching for ways to do uh, conservative onlays I did quite a few gold onlays but the gold shows so people don't like those 
And then um, a lot of times, uh, the porcelains at the time uh, didn't look good if you did an onlay. Now, what an onlay does is it leaves the outside of the tooth intact and you cover the chewing surface and so the food is chewed with the prosthetic, whether it's gold or porcelain or porcelain bonded to metal. And so uh, it, at the time, if you wanted a, a tooth to look good, you just about had to cut the enamel off and have the porcelain go all the way to the gum line. And so, um, so I would do large fillings. And one time by accident, another story, there was an, an uh, elderly woman whose husband had passed away and uh, her tooth broke down. She had a large filling and the side of the tooth broke. And I said, well, uh, she, I said, you really need a crown. And she said, just pull it. I can't afford it. Ouch. And so, in, yeah, in the army, I had done uh, amalgam or mercury alloy uh, fillings uh, because we couldn't do crowns on all those soldiers. It just wasn't practical. So we would build up the missing part of the tooth with metal and polish it and shape it. And I got really good at that. And so I just did that for her tooth with composite. And it lasted over 20 years. Um, and I was kind of shocked because, uh, you know, no one, I mean, we're taught that that using plastics like that and polymers can't hold up, but they, they actually can if uh, the tooth is held together. So you use composites. So how did you, uh, you what did you, how, did you put the, com what kind of composites did you use to put the tooth back together or whatever? Well, at the time, um, I used um, a material that I was using on everything and uh, the, it, it was successful because it uh, did not put too much stress on the teeth. Now we have other materials that mimic the tooth structure itself, hence the word biomimetic. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we get that, by the way, we get that term from biomimetic engineering. Yeah. And a very quick example of biomimetic engineering there was, it was actually an electrical engineer in Switzerland, I believe, who um, noticed that the uh, burr, the cockle burrs would get stuck in his dog's fur and on his clothes. And he thought, well, that's got to be useful. And he invented Velcro. Oh. So that is the uh, combination of two words, the uh, lorries, which is velvet, and that's French, a French word. I didn't pronounce it well. And crochet, which is hook. We all know the word crochet from the hook people use to work with the yarn. But So Velcro is biomimetically engineered fastening. So basically you're having an imitation cockle burr attached to your dog fur whenever you use one of those straps. Well, so what year did you have this patient that uh, she said, uh, I couldn't just pull the teeth and you put some, I guess you somehow engineered some uh, filling in there, uh, not mercury, but the other, uh, I guess you put a bunch of composites. What year did this happen? 
Um, that was about uh, 20 years ago or so. And, uh, okay, just so for about fun, 1997? Um, yeah, that, that yeah, sounds okay. about right. Okay. And so the, from then, so you had these other patients come in. Did you do any more experience, experiments? You must have read about this when you were shocked. Uh, did you do any well, reading upon well, this? Ask Dennis. Well, I, I took a lot of courses. Uh, I, I have seen a lot of failed white fillings. Um, that's, and, and I did not want to repeat the mistakes that I've seen with other dentists. In fact, um, uh, when I first started practicing with my father, Don Robertson, who's a dentist, um, we would have patients come up from California. They were usually BYU students, and they would have had all their white fillings out, and ha I'm, I'm sorry, they'd have all their silver amalgam or mercury alloy fillings replaced with white ones, and we would do x-rays and see all this decay and rot under those, so then we would replace them and put metal back in. And so um, the, the big thing was we just didn't want to have uh, the decay there. Um, so um, before I was going to, oh, and my patients increasingly were saying that they didn't want metal. Now, I had been taught and I knew that mercury was completely safe in teeth, that it was adhesively bonded, that there was no problem with it, that these people are just being, they're just paranoid and maybe a little bit crazy. And, uh, and I was just um, uh, trying to uh, just listen to them. I didn't want to insult them, but I just knew Mercury was safe, and I don't know how they were so worried about it. And I've learned since then that they were right. But anyway, I took three courses by dentists who were successfully doing these white fillings before I started doing them on my own. Was this at, this must uh, have been after you did the composite 20 years ago? Yes. And where were these courses? Were they here in Utah, or where were they? Oh, uh, usually you have to go to uh, different places. Um, uh, with one, I went to California. And then with the other two, they came to Utah. So I was able to take those courses. Oh. And then um, I worked with a lecturer who uh, lectures. He's, he's internationally known. Uh, his name is uh, Gordon Christensen. And he is a dentist who is from Mapleton. And he has an... Uh, a teaching institute in Provo, and I took all of his courses as well, but when I would try to do the onlays, they still would seem to fail. Oh. And so, um, so, uh, but, so what happened is I just, I ended up doing large fillings, and um, I knew that they were going to fail because we're taught that they don't work. Even Gordon Christensen teaches that you can't get a bond to the dentin layer. But uh, anyway, um, I'm probably going on too long. <laughs> well, let me ask but, you this. Um, oh, go ahead. Yes. No, you go ahead. Uh, so what? Okay, so mercury filling is not good for your teeth. What does it do exactly? 
Oh, so so uh, I don't like to cause mass fear in uh, with things. Is I I had uh, so my father uh, did not ever do a composite resin filling on a bat tooth or a chewing tooth. Everything he did was amalgam, and, uh, and when he retired, I had not done one either. He retired at the end of 1992. Mm -hmm. And so uh, here are the basic problems with the mercury alloy. And um, I'm going to refer to uh, just the history of medicine and mercury and things that are just known. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, mercury does, mercury vapor does come off of fillings. And that is just a fact. We're taught that it does not. But there's kind of a dichotomy there. So let's suppose we're putting a, a, an amalgam, which is this uh, paste made with powdered metal and um, mercury mixed in. You put that in a child's tooth, and hopefully you have a dental dam, um, which captures all of the, the scrap so it doesn't go down their throat and they swallow it. But you take that scrap, that is now a toxic waste and it is dangerous. And you have to take that and put it in a sealed container, preferably submerged in water or glycerin, to absorb uh, the mercury vapor that's coming off. Also, when they we... They do this before they put it on your tooth, correct? Oh, no, these are the scraps. So oh, you okay. mix it. You mix it and you place it in the tooth and you have this stuff left over that's falling out okay. as you try to put it in the tooth. And so um, that has to be treated as a toxic waste. And you can't dispose of it in the trash. You have to pay a company to properly dispose of it. And if you give it to a company that does not properly dispose of it, you can be fined that they didn't handle it well. And then the mercury that we remove from people's teeth goes uh, down our suction and the large chunks are caught in special screen traps. You cannot throw that in the trash. In fact, the federal government has just made a law that um, uh, all dental offices have to have what's called amalgam separators to keep that sludge from going into the sewer. So, here's my question for you, Kevin. How is something that is too toxic for the sewer and too toxic to be in a room safe in a child's tooth? Uh, I, I wouldn't think it was. I've never heard of anything being too toxic for the sewer, to be honest. <laughs> so, um... Anyway, so uh, I'm being a little bit facetious there, and you had yeah. told me your brother's a dentist, and I hope he's listening, and I hope that he's laughing and not being offended. A, a lot of dent, a lot of the younger dentists, especially, are not buying into what the old geezer fuddy duddy dentists are trying to make them buy into. If that makes well, sense. Me, yeah, let me ask you this, because I went to the dentist back in 2007. I had two cavities. The dentist, uh, actually I had one cavity, but he said I technically had two, but don't worry about the second one too much. 
he did feel the first one. And I, I just put my tongue back there, and the filling is still in my mouth. So a couple questions I have. Number one, how long does the filling last? I got this in 2007. Number two, um, how come I am still alive and well, and so are thousands of other people out there who've had mercury filling in their teeth and such? And, and I really appreciate that question because sometimes I get a, a little bit too intense. And, and I act like I'm making a court case against things. Um, there are a lot of people that have mercury fillings all of their life and never have any problems from it. And a lot of that is because the, uh, they, the mercury is not affecting them. They're not as sensitive to it, and they can detox. Um, but there is really no, le- no safe level of mercury by the way, do you know if you have the white composite fillings, or is it a metal one? I have no idea. Never asked. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. This does bring up a thing, too, that a small filling done well can last your lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's the larger they get and the more tooth that's being replaced, the more, the more compromised it is uh, for the long term. I do know this. So, he had to dig down pretty deep because he had to numb my mouth, and I just asked him, uh, can you do this without numbing my mouth? And he said, no, I'm digging down too deep, and you'd notice it. So it wasn't just a little surface then. So, uh, but in your, uh, it, could last, it could last a long, long time. Ten years is really, uh, really good for a white filling. Mm-hmm. And... I need to say, so when, when your question is kind of what's wrong with the, uh, with the metal fillings, um, I want to say what's right. The, the metal is really hard, and it wears for a long, it holds up for a long time to wear. And um, I have seen patients that are in their 80s that had metal fillings in their tooth uh, put in in their 20s or even in their childhood that are still there. And so they can last a long, long time. And that is in part because the silver is antimicrobial and so is the mercury. The concerns about them are that, um, the me- so if you have a larger metal filling and the tooth, the, the larger the filling is in the center of the tooth, the weaker the tooth becomes, it's just obvious. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you enlarge the filling, the tooth reduces. And that, uh, the uh, filling does not flex and the tooth does. And so you get this instability as the tooth cracks. And so that's one thing we see with um, larger fillings is that, um, that there's just too much splitting force on the tooth. And then if the filling's deep and there's always torque in a structure. So as you have the twisting and torsion of function, the metal doesn't move and the tooth does. And it's uh, when you have, uh, it's kind of like trying to fix a fishing pole with a piece of steel pipe. You put the ends of the broken pole into the pipe. You don't have to be an engineer to know that when you try to, cast with that pole it's going to have a lot of stress uh, a lot of stress at the ends of the pipe where the um, fiberglass is flexing and that's kind of what happens with the tooth the tooth flexes the metal doesn't 
and you get fractures. So the, 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 uh, one of the, I, I have people come in all the time that are terrified because they just learned how toxic their 30-year-old fillings are and they're not sick. And they want it out today. And uh, I try to get them to calm down because um, I'm going to quote Dr. Hal Huggins. He said that it's better to have a whole mouthful of amalgam or mercury fillings than to have a root canal. And so uh, if you get all of those fillings out and you have them replaced with something that is structurally and biologically inferior, and I'm skipping the mercury issue, I'm just saying if, if you have a filling that is not antimicrobial and it's leaking, it's, it's worse than just having your mercury back. So oh. I kind of around here, but uh, the amalgam filling, as, as bad as the mercury is and everything, I think it's uh, not bad enough, especially if, you, if somebody's had them for 30 years and they're not sick. There's time to figure out what to do calmly. So if that person's not sick after 30 years, number one, is that an exception? And number two, did, would you say that that person has a good immune system or what? Um, well, it, it's really complicated. Um, the, uh, when, when we talk about mercury, it's a complex issue with health, whether mercury is in the, the preservative in vaccines or whether it's in uh, fish, because the uh, FDA is saying nothing about mercury in fish, or uh, they do get concerned when it's in a, a mine, like Eureka, Utah became a uh, EPA Superfund site, and they spent millions of dollars uh, sealing off the, the mine tailings around these mines from the 1800s and early 1900s and uh, trying to get to keep mercury from leaching into the water. Um, but they kind of ignore it with health. And so um, uh, it could be that they have a very good immune system. And, uh, but uh, I, don't, I don't like people to come in with, with fear and try and make uh, decisions and end up with something worse uh, when what they have is probably not as bad as what a rush job would cause. So let's uh, just do a scenario. If I were to come in to your dentist today, or you, as a client, patient, for just a regular checkup, Walk me through the whole process and then pretend that I have a cavity. Then what would you do? Okay. So our exam uh, is no different than anyone else's. Um, and so we would, we would take x-rays. We really need the x-rays to see the structure of what's going on. And then we do full mouth periodontal probing, and the hygienist does that for me. And we're checking for the health of the gum disease and the bone. And uh, and then we do cancer screening, 
and with children we do an orthodontic screening and then we make note of existing dentistry and existing conditions and then depending on where the patient's needs are or where they're coming from then we talk about options for treatment and so if someone comes to me and um, they are not um, they haven't heard that the mercury is a problem the hygienist will say are you concerned about your silver um, alloy fillings yes or no if they say no then we just make a note of it because we're not trying to scare people and uh, it's I mean usually when they come to me they know what we do and they know what our beliefs are but I don't want anyone to feel pressure so that's thing one now let's talk about your tooth let's say let's say say it was very deep um, like yeah, it, which apparently mine in 2007 was yes let's say it's it's so deep that um, your tooth almost looks like a salad bowl with a with a rim around it. Wow, that's and a scary thought. Enamel. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so uh, what I would have done in my past, and I, I've got a picture of a tooth with seven little pins in it or screws that I put in. It's like a really scary picture. And I cringe when I see that, but I still keep it out. Um, because that's what I was taught to get to put a crown on a tooth. You had to put all those screws in it to then do your buildup and put that on it. Uh, uh, with a, with their teeth that are hollowed out, and that there's so much of the inner part of the tooth that's gone. But off the outside, there's nothing left, and so then you would have to put screws in the tooth to do a buildup and then put the crown on the outside of it. Here's what we do different, and um, this is where I want to go back to the Velcro. Um, it's really uh, important to have an understanding how the tooth is designed, and when you and I were talking last week, I got so technical and so wordy that uh, you mentioned to me that you missed about half of what I said, and then yeah, so that I was, well, yeah. Yeah, so let's just say I have a cavity. What kind of filling would you put in my teeth or, or things like that? What, what? Obviously, you'd have to do something. Or I don't know how you. How would you put the composites in my teeth? What, what exactly would you do? So, so here's the difference. Uh, no one would take a defect that large and put a filling in it and expect it to last. They mm -hmm. might do it as a temporary thing or an experimental thing and uh and when we do stuff like that it's good to let the patients know that it's not long term well what we're doing we are expecting it to be long term so uh i'll just talk a little bit very quickly i need to mention three structures and stop me if i get wordy um the enamel is outer shell is like glass it is strong and brittle the inner part of the tooth is uh, flexible 
because it's about uh, 80% fiber or collagen. Let me say again, it's 80% um, inorganic. So it, I should say it's fluid and fiber and cell extensions and uh, and then it's about um, 20% uh, you know, calcium type structure. And then there's a layer between the outer shell, which is like a helmet, and the outer shell is like a helmet, and the inner is like this flexible material that has a constant flow of fluid through it. And the layer between is soft, and it is it has a really high concentration of collagen, and so it is the part that acts like a liner between the helmet and the tooth. So we've got those two, those three structures: the dentin, the enamel, and the layer in between. It has a name. Well, well, the name is the soft zone. We'll call it the soft zone. So we're trying to imitate that when we rebuild the tooth. So uh, uh, what we do is imitate the tooth structure as we replace the layers. Um, first of all, though, we have to have a strong adhesive bond to the tooth. Now, I mentioned Gordon Christensen. He's a friend of mine. Uh, two weeks ago when I was in Lake Tahoe, um, I missed his class, but he said it to, to another group. He said that you cannot get an adhesive bond to the dentin. Well, actually, you can, and you do. But it is not the normal dental approach. There's not an easy super easy way to do it. I shouldn't say, any dentist could do it. But uh, there are things that we do um, before we actually start working on the tooth, we flow ozone into the tooth for about 30 seconds. And we use medical grade oxygen and ozone and a research grade ozone generator, but it doesn't matter. You know those ozone generators that you use to um, bubble into water so you can wash your vegetables with ozone water. Have you heard of those? No. But anyway, just ozone gas kills bacteria. Then we sandblast. Now, the sandblaster is really called a micro-etcher. And it super cleans the tooth and it increases the bond to the dent by up to 400%. Then we use one of the adhesives that work. And there are only about four out of 97 in the world that work. Now, I should say that works that work well. Um, the, uh, uh, a lot of them are imitations of the others um, that don't really work so well. Some of them were made early on and they kind of got grandfathered in and they're just approved because they were approved and then um, and so you get, you get a lot of traditional stuff it's the same with food additives they put stuff in food because they always put it in and so uh, anyway we get an adhesive bond and we set a timer for five minutes and then we do a thin layer which is about the thickness of a coat of nail polish and we, uh, that is a uh, liner material that goes over the dentin, and it is uh, it creates a very secure bond to the deep dentin layer, 
and the bond that follows is weaker. So if there's a failure, then uh, the failure uh, is between two layers of plastic and not into the tooth. And, and I've seen that happen where uh, fillings that are way too thin, meant to be temporary, the fillings crack up and that inner layer against the dentin is still solid as can be. But it's just a thin nail polished layer. Then we put, if it's deep, we put fiber mesh in. It's comparable to using fiberglass, though it doesn't do the same thing. But we put that inside the tooth, and then uh, we like cure that. That's embedded in a different kind of polymer. And then we use really small increments of a material that has the same um, flexibility as the tooth, which is a quite an important thing. And then it is the strongest and it has the lowest shrinkage and what makes the white fillings fail and their failure they're they're failing at a much higher rate than the metal ones ever did and everyone knows that uh, all dentists know that these white fillings are failing which is why we're doing more root canals and pulling more teeth and doing more implants than ever but coming back to what we do we put that fiber mesh in there and we put that layer in, we keep it down below the edge of the tooth. We don't want it sticking out. And then we put these little blobs of the next material that is the strongest, lowest shrinkage with the same flexibility. And we put that in in little blobs that are placed and all of them are less than a millimeter thick. Usually they're a half a millimeter or so. And sometimes I will do 20 or 30 or 40 or even 50 of those in a tooth. It takes a while, but what happens is each of those little blobs shrinks into place. So it's kind of like if you're building a house, you pour the footings first, then you pour the walls, uh, or you pour the foundation, and then you pour the basement. And so uh, there, there's a lot that I learned from construction and washing construction because I didn't do concrete work I did other stuff but um, you you get uh, the you get the foundation the footings the floor you get all that done first before you start building the top and so and then we switch to a uh, another material that uh, is very smooth and uh, the inner stuff I was talking about has big chunks in it which makes it strong the outer stuff has really fine particles in it which makes it smooth and it looks a lot better so um, and, and that is important you don't uh, you don't want something to look like it's uh, glass that's been worn or something you know how glass gets a, a foggy uh, fogginess to it when it's got wear on it um, yeah but anyway that's what this stuff looks like so then we do the top layer and uh, the tooth is all tied together because it's done in little bits and the adhesive bond to the dentin is stronger than the bond to the enamel so here's the thing that takes 
a lot longer than just putting some adhesive in there and taking the cartridge full of composite and filling the whole tooth in just a few seconds and then uh, carving the filling down. This takes quite a while and so uh, you have to pay for the doctor to do that but it's cheaper than a root canal and a crown would be. So yesterday I had a patient that had uh, driven from Colorado and I have to admit that the work I did before had some leakage at the outer edges of it. And so I had a black line. And so, uh, but, but the internal core where all the fiber mesh was, looked, I mean, it, it was perfect. There was no leakage into there. And so um, I uh, removed the material that I had put uh, in there. And that black line was just between the filling and the tooth and I couldn't polish it out. I thought it was a surface thing, but it turned in, It turned out that it was about a hundredth of an inch into the tooth. Now, a hundredth of an inch to a tooth is quite a long ways. You know, when a tooth's a half an inch wide, you know, that, I mean, that, that's cool. It's not something that we want to leave. So I took out all that filling material and redid that part, but I didn't have to do anything to the inside of it and so that was a failure of my technique but it was not a failure for the tooth and um, I didn't charge for that repair because uh, it hasn't been very long since I worked on that tooth but the patient knows that uh, the uh, dentist she'd gone to before would have done a root canal and a crown on that tooth and what we did is uh, a fourth of what that would have cost now if she could have got a filling done somebody might have done a filling for cheaper but they would not have done a filling it would have been a root canal and a crown so let me ask you this if i go into your uh, into your dentistry there and I have a cavity that's about, oh, that's pretty deep into my tooth. Because uh, it sounds like it's a pretty lengthy procedure. How long would it take uh, for you to fix the cavity and all that? Would it take a few appointments? How long would it take? And then how oh. long would each appointment take? Very good question. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the extreme case of, uh, yeah. let's say, say uh, your... Um, You've been told that you need a root canal and a crown, but you don't have an infection. And when you put cold on your tooth, ice cream or something, you feel it. And so the yeah. tooth's alive. So the inside is healthy, but it's just got some structural problems. So um, that might take, if it's, if, it's, if it's complicated, it might take an hour and a half to two hours. Oh, wow. And so, uh, Because that's how much, I mean... It, what what's difficult is when we have to replace uh, large areas of tooth and we're doing freestanding replacement and build up rather than filling a hole we're now building it up building it out and another thing that's really hard is when you have decay in between the teeth that goes clear down to the bone and we have to put a form down there that will um, hold up and the, uh, 
watertight. And by the way, I told you about that black line from the patient yesterday. Uh, that was from a little bit of blood getting around my form, and I knew I knew that there was blood on the other side of the form, but I at the time I didn't know it had affected the edge of the tooth. So when I put my adhesive in, there was a little teeny bit of blood at the very outer edge of the tooth by the form that uh, made this little teeny black line. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it might have lasted for years, but it really didn't look good, and I didn't want to leave it like that. But anyway, so so uh, on the one extreme, it, it could take an hour and a half to two hours, but uh, it just saved you from having a root canal and a crown. And I really won't go into root canals today, but I'll just say nobody wants a root canal if they don't need it. If, yeah. if I could give you a free root canal that you didn't need, uh, I'll just say this. What if you could get a finger cut off for free from the best surgeon in the world? You know? Mm, no. <laughs> and that's not a good but, but still, it's just like, if we can avoid them, let's avoid them. Let me ask you this, and then uh, we got to wrap it up here. When I was uh, eight years old, I think one of the reasons I never had braces, uh, I, 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 we're running out of time. We don't have any time to get into braces. Maybe we can do a part two podcast sometime. But uh, when I was eight years old, I think the reason I didn't have any braces is because the uh, dentist made me wear a retainer. Some people can call it a bike plate. Uh, others call it a retainer. It was on my uh, top teeth. I hated wearing this. Because I was limited to what I could eat, I couldn't chew gum. And as a little kid, I loved chewing gum, bubble gum, like most kids do. I couldn't eat Tootsie Rolls very well, though I did, but I shouldn't have. And I couldn't eat hamburgers, just real restricted. And I hated that, but it, my teeth came in. And I attribute the fact that I didn't have to wear braces to the spike plate. Number one, what do you think of that? Number two, what's your opinion on braces and retainers, real quick? First of all, I am absolutely amazed. Who made that bite plate for you? You know, I don't know. I just know that the dentist told me that I had to wear it, and all of my teeth came in. So that dentist is way, 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 way ahead of his time. Really? So, what? yeah, what was allowed to happen... That was in January of 88, by the way. I was seven going on to eight. Just a correction there. January of 1988. Yeah. Okay. There was a dentist by the name of John Wittig who was uh, who did orthodontics, and he taught about cranial orthopedics and airway development and oh. normal face development and everything. So what you did, uh, and by you wearing it enough, it allowed your jaw and face to develop normally. And I have, even though I haven't met you, the fact that you didn't need braces and that everything came to place, I'm assuming that your tongue put your teeth in the position that they needed to be. No, um, my tongue was I, free. My tongue was not put in any position. No, what I mean is your tongue put your teeth in the position when you didn't have that thing Oh, in. possibly. I do. Yeah. I will make a confession, though. I took the bite plate out quite often and played with it. I took it out with my tongue and kind of played with it and put it back in. I'm 
my mom got really mad at me one day and said, you keep doing that, you'll wear that bank plate till Christmas. Well, I kept doing that, and it never happened, so I don't know what you make of that. <laughs> well, I say that's a normal kid with something that's not attached to their teeth. <laughs> I, um, yeah, it's, I, uh, if you want to open somebody's palate, you really need to have something cemented that they cannot take out. And oh no! This little, was uh, anyway. Go I, ahead. No, this, yeah, this was I, not cemented. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to do that. I don't. I wouldn't want that in my mouth. So I keep making the removable ones. Yeah, uh, but uh, anyway, yeah. So, so I think that I think that uh, you wearing that, especially I have. I this is the first time I've even heard of a bite plate being done that early. Yeah, and that's just way way ahead of time. So that is pretty impressive. Do you think so, that that's probably so? You think? Do you think the bike plate has anything to do with why I never had braces, or do you think it's the, the combination of the bike plate and the tongue? Well, no, I think I think the bike plate allowed your um, teeth to come into a normal position by bringing your jaw down and forward and and keeping you open. What happens uh, is our jaws overclose. And our teeth don't come in all the way, and our jaw's too far back. And our tongue's too far back, and it covers the airway. And then with men, especially as we get older, we get some fat back in the oropharynx, and we get a lot of snoring and oh. sleep apnea. And so men get, uh, men get fat around their jaws and uh, in their throat more than women do. Women have a oh, different wow. distribution of fat, but they still have problems too. So, but anyway, so that was like a really good question to to end on, and I think well, this. Are you for or against braces, real quick? Because every one of my family, except for me and my sister, had braces, and I, I, I think it's probably because we both had bite plates. Um, I really, so I was um, taking a course to do cranial orthopedic body balanced orthodontics and i had taken the courses for oh almost two years flying to seattle every six weeks or so and i had some patients going and then they said they were going to cancel the program um and uh and so i and i didn't want to start a different program with somebody else but anyway, another thing um, was that they said that I needed to have a CT scan machine to evaluate the jaw position with CT scans, and I started checking into that. It was going to be $150,000, and I thought, okay, if I have to have that to do this, then I just can't do it. I couldn't spend. I, uh, when I was younger, I spent that kind of money doing things, and... Uh, when you spent, imagine spending $150,000 for a laptop that's going to be obsolete, the hardware is going to be obsolete in five years. That's the type wow. of investment. When you get into this sophisticated dental electronics, it's not going to be worth anything before you pay it off. And so, so that's why I didn't want to do it. And even though I have somebody who can do the CT scans for me, um, you kind of need to have it in office. 
so you can evaluate where the jaw is with different bite plates in like you had a bite plate but with your bite plate it uh just held your jaw open to an arbitrary position and then your jaw developed where it wanted to be and then your teeth came in to a healthy position i'm assuming could be. I, I, I don't know. It's possible. But it's kind of funny. I have to end on this note. My bike plate broke for who knows what reason. I, let's see. I had this bike plate in, I believe, late January of 1988. I do believe it. Yeah, it had to have been late January, possibly early February. I'm thinking probably late January. So I had that in from February to early April, I believe. And, yeah, it was early April, right before my birthday. And my bike plate broke, probably because I was chewing on it a lot, playing with it in my mouth, who knows what. And I was kind of thinking, oh, uh, my dentist is going to be mad at me, and so is my mom. And I told my mom that my bike plate broke, and she called the dentist. I had an appointment, I think a day or two later, went in and... Dennis said, oh, you're fine. You don't need this anymore. Well, I got to say, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. By the way, uh, before we end the podcast, uh, I do need you to stick around when I'm done, but uh, what is your favorite part of being a member of the LDS Church? Oh, uh, you know, aside from... Uh, my belief in ongoing revelation and and um, established doctrines it is uh, it to me I love the fact that it's an all volunteer organization and that we don't have a bunch of corporate fat cats that are getting you know like, I mean like a CEO of an insurance company is getting fifty million a year. Um, you know, some of these athletes, you know, 14, 15 million a year. Um, a lot of these CEOs of different companies are, you know, it, it is nice to just have, to, to be part of an organization that is, is that's honestly run. And if you want to give a thousand dollars to, uh, the starving people in Rwanda, uh, it's going to go there hundred percent of it. The church will match all of the administrative costs and pay for that so that your money goes straight there. It's kind of a, a matching thing. And, and just um, to me, that really, uh, I don't know, it, it, I, I like the fact that my um, bishop and my state president are normal guys. No, okay, they're a lot better guys than I am, but um, they're, they're people that have jobs and have families and have spouses and uh, I, I just have can I kind of get a weird feeling from uh, professional religious people, especially when they start to get really successful. They they get kind of entitled, and kind of weird. Yeah. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but it, it, yeah. I think I, and I like the fact that there's no paid ministry in our church. And I have a friend who's a non-member who complains about that, but. I think if we were to have paid ministry, uh, I could just see corruption going on as much as our church has grown. Maybe not a little church like in Kalispell, Montana, 
it's certainly a big mega church. Uh, I could easily see corruption happening. Not saying that it would, but it, it would certainly be more vulnerable, don't you think? Oh, well, it does happen. I mean, there was the, I can't remember, uh, it's good I don't remember the name, but there's, there was a minister back east who was, like, he got a 70, or $7 million Learjet or something, and uh, his his ministry was doing so well that it was okay to get Learjet and all these, it was all all business expense, too, because he has to fly around and and do, do the Lord's work and everything. But to me, um, I would have a real hard time giving a nickel to, to for somebody's Learjet. <laughs> wow. Well, it was great to have you on the podcast, and uh, we'll do this again sometime. I'm sure maybe we'll have more to discuss down the road. Well, thank you very much. You have a a wonderful evening. Yes, you too.